On the day after Christmas of 1996, six-year-old beauty queen Jean Benet Ramsey was reported missing from her home in Boulder, Colorado. A bizarre ransom note found inside the home indicated that Jean Benet had been abducted and ordered her parents to pay more than $100,000 for her safe return. According to the note, the group responsible would contact the Ramseys between 8 and 10 a.m. the next morning to negotiate the swap. But 10 a.m. came and went without any word from the kidnappers. Unfortunately, it became clear why the phone never rang later that evening when Jean Benet's lifeless body was discovered in the basement of the family's home. 25 years later, Jean Benet's murder remains unsolved. Hello and welcome to Fact and Suspicion. Tonight's mystery is the tragic murder of Jean Benet Ramsey. So, it's difficult to describe to someone who isn't an American or who was too young to remember Jean Benet's death exactly what the media's response was like. The 24-hour news cycle was still relatively new at the time, and the O.J. Simpson trial had just ended. So, networks were desperately searching for stories to fill time slots. And Jean Benet fit the bill perfectly. Yeah, I remember this on the national news every single night for... Months. Several months. Yeah, I mean, the clips of her pageants were basically viral videos before viral videos existed. Yeah, and remember, they got a lot of hate, too. You know, the whole pageant culture. Yeah, I mean, I think that's because the rest of the country just wasn't used to it. I mean, pageants, it turns out, are a Southern phenomenon. Uh, I didn't know that until then, to be honest. But, you know, it was just, it was something that the rest of the country just was not used to at all. Yeah, I remember, I knew so many people that were in pageants all the time. I thought that was something that was just normal for everyone, right? Yeah, I mean, of course we would growing up with it, right? Right, right. Did I actually ever tell you about the time that um, my wife just kind of stumbled upon JonBenet Ramsey's grave? Uh, no, I don't think you did. Uh, how'd she do that? Well, um, you know, our daughter plays travel softball. So, you know, any weekend, it could be just anywhere in the South, basically, right? Yeah. Gotcha. And she was, uh, it was just coming, you know, out of Atlanta uh, one day and traffic was just terrible. But I mean. That's pretty normal. Yeah. Yeah. What else is new, right? Bad traffic in Atlanta. But uh, so she just got off the interstate because traffic was so bad. And um, one of the quirks my wife has is she really likes cemeteries. And, you know, she got off the interstate and there's just a big cemetery there. So she stops and starts walking through the cemetery looking around. That's, and, a, that's a bit odd, buddy. Well, maybe. But I mean. At any rate, she walked right right by Jean-Benet Ramsey's, uh, Ramsey's grave. It wasn't was, uh, like posted or anything? No, no. She just you just happened to walk by it. Uh, Jean-Benet, and, and right next to it was her mother Patsy's grave. Oh, okay. I mean, that's fits. That, you know, she was buried in Atlanta, or I suppose like was right outside of Atlanta. Yeah, it's just outside of Atlanta. It's in, it's in Marietta. Gotcha. But yeah, yeah, it was just, it's a strange little, little story that, uh, Really doesn't have any bearing on the case, but yeah, it's a uh, it's a cool story. Yeah, it's interesting. She take any photos? Yeah, she's got some. I'll uh, I'll send them to you. Maybe we can stick them in the YouTube video or something. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't mind wouldn't mind seeing them. Okay, so uh, moving on. Now, 
one difficulty with this case is that there's no clean set of facts. Like, with Brandon Lawson, we know the basic structure of what took place. We don't know what happened to Brandon, but we know the basics. He had a fight with Ledessa, drove towards his father's house, broke down, and at some point he called 911 and then disappeared. There is a basic set of facts that are largely undisputed. That's just not the case with Jean Bonnet. In fact, there's very little about this case that isn't disputed. And that's due in large part to the fact that most of the information we have about that night comes from some of the primary suspects, namely John and Patsy Ramsey. Now, to be clear, I don't say that to imply guilt. It's simply a descriptive statement, right? I mean, they were two of the primary suspects. I mean, as the parents usually are in these cases. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost always in one of these cases a family member, you know, whether it's the parents or not, and usually the parents, right? Exactly. So, given these difficulties, I'm going to lay out the most commonly accepted facts in the case, and then later we'll discuss some of the competing theories. This will just be a bare-bones description of events. So, if I skip a detail that supports your theory of the crime... Maybe wait a bit before you type that angry comment, because I'll likely get to it a while later when we discuss either the investigation or the possible suspects. Or we can at least hope that if we do make you angry that you're listening on Spotify, so there's no way for you to comment. Ouch. Spotify burn. Uh, But no, really, it'd be nice for them to have some way to engage with your audience. Yeah, and I criticize Spotify, but I think most people listen on Spotify, so... Yeah, I suppose that's probably true, but that doesn't mean that they couldn't fix their app. But, you know, moving on, I suppose. So the story begins on Christmas of 1996. The Ramses had attended a Christmas party at the home of their close friends, Fleet and Priscilla White. According to Patsy, they left the party at around 8.30 and made a couple stops to drop off presents before heading home. Now, depending on the story... Jean Benet and her brother Burke were either awake or asleep when they arrived. Uh, John has claimed both, but I, I don't suppose it really matters. Either way, John says that he put Jean Benet to bed, assembled one of Burke's presents, and then went to bed. Uh, this would have been around 10 o'clock. Apparently, they were planning to get up early the next morning, uh, sometime around 5 or 5.30, to fly out to their vacation home in Michigan with John's older children. Now, John's older children were not in the house, though, right? No, no, they had already moved out. Uh, I believe they were in college, or maybe even a little older than that at the time. Okay. Now, according to Patsy, she got up on schedule at around 5.30 and headed downstairs to brew a cup of coffee. And that's when she discovered the ransom note at the bottom of the stairs. So, I guess at this point, we should probably read and briefly discuss the ransom note. But let's try to focus our discussion simply on the contents of the note at this point, and not any of the broader implications. Well, we'll get to those in a bit. I'll, I'll try to, to stay away from the broader implications, but there are a lot of them from the note. So. There are a few, no question. <laughs> so, okay, so here we go. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. 
At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills, and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate-sized attaché to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money, and hence an earlier pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions, and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. Victory. SBTC. So, let's get the obvious out of the way first. It seems just a little wordy for a ransom note. I mean, the author spends three pages on what three sentences probably could have accomplished. We've got your kid. You've got the money. We'd like to trade the kid for the money. Boom. Done. Yeah, it honestly sounded like, I don't know, someone was trying to make it sound like a ransom note to me. Yeah, I mean, it reeks of staging. And that, yeah, that's, just, that's, the first, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Another thing that is super strange to me about this note is the amount $118,000. I mean, usually wouldn't it be just a nice round amount, like 100000 Well, actually, that amount turns out to be nearly the exact amount of John's recent Christmas bonus. So the implication is that it's someone that he works with, someone that knows how much he got as a bonus? Yeah, that, that seems to be the suggestion, yes. Well, you know, in that case, wouldn't that person not want to give away that hint as to their identity, maybe? Well, if they were the one who wrote it, probably not. But <laughs> well, yeah, I'm just just trying to point out the strange, you know. I mean, it's it's reasonable. Oh. Um, another thing that's been pointed out is that several of the notes lines appear to have been ripped from movies. Like, don't grow a brain is from Speed. I had forgotten that line from Speed. I, the, it sounded familiar, but I remember that now. Right. And it had just been released a couple of years before this note was written. 
Speed was really big back in the 90s. Now that I think about it. Really good movie, honestly. I love early Keanu Reeves. I mean, some people don't, but I do. <laughs> I basically love all Keanu Reeves. Maybe I shouldn't say that out loud, but. I, you know, I, it's it's okay to like Keanu Reeves now, though. You know, it's not like uncool anymore. Fair enough. Uh, everyone like realized well, after John Wick, it's cool to like Keanu again. I, I think that's a fair point. I mean, wasn't it cool for a while during the Matrix? Yeah, I suppose it was, but I mean, I've I've been watching Keanu films since you know, like Bill and Ted and Babes in Toyland. So he was in Babes in Toyland. Yeah, man. Yeah, uh, you know, I, you probably haven't watched it since you were a little kid, but he he was he was like the main. The main guy in it. I mean, I, yeah, because when I watched it when I was a kid, I had no idea who Keanu Reeves was, so I guess I didn't put it together. Yeah. yeah. I'll have to go back and check that out now. That's interesting. So, also, the, the part about uh, talking to a stray dog is apparently very similar to a quote from Dirty Harry. In the movie, it's, if you talk to anyone, I don't care if it's a Pekingese pissing against a lamppost, the girl dies. I mean, that's eerily similar. It it is, and you know, I thought that was a weird line too. You know, that it's weird. Why would you say that even? I mean, it was a weird line among many weird lines. Right. Yeah. Well, that one stuck out a bit, though. I, there were other uh, movie quotes, from what I understand, but but those are the two that I really found convincing. But I suppose more central to the note itself. I mean, the part about the small foreign faction. But there's a couple problems with that. I mean, first of all. Who thinks of themselves as foreign, right? I mean, you might refer to someone else as foreign, but it doesn't seem like like the person writing this letter would think of themselves as a foreign faction. No, obviously not. That's that's like an external thing, right? Exactly. Right, and the FBI, like FBI profiles have pointed out that it's also bizarre that they use the word small because that seems to uh, minimize their authority. Mm, that, that makes sense, actually, yeah. I mean, let's be honest, this note is just a clusterfuck from start to finish. Right. And when they say foreign, you think terrorist immediately, right? Yeah, exactly. That's that's clearly the implication there. What terrorist is going to know what his Christmas bonus was? And what terrorist even does something like this? Terrorists don't target single individuals and try to get a hundred grand from them. I mean, and what terrorist would be concerned with John's sleeping habits? Be sure and get a lot of rest there, buddy. Yeah, we want you to have enough rest to to handle this delivery of the money. Like I said, the, the, the note just reeks of staging from top to bottom. Right. Well, you know what? I think I think that some of those broader implications. Yeah. Let's let's hold off. We'll get to that later. All right. So let's get back to the basic timeline of events. Now, after finding the note, Patsy woke John and then made the nine one one call. She also called up family friends. I believe it was the Watts and the Fernies and asked them to come over, I suppose, for moral support. Now, within 10 minutes of the 911 call, officers begin to arrive on scene. Officer French arrives first, followed by four additional officers between 6 and 8 a.m. They conduct a basic search of the house and find nothing out of the ordinary. The Ramsey's friends and family also continue to arrive. Now, at 8.10, the first detective, Linda Arndt, arrives on scene. Now, Linda Arndt has received quite a bit of flack for not immediately securing the scene, but as we'll learn in a bit, this wasn't entirely her fault. 
And you have to remember, the police were still operating under the assumption that this was a kidnapping at the time. Even if it was a kidnapping, this is still a crime scene. I mean, I agree. I'm just saying that it was not entirely her fault. There were extenuating circumstances that, that we'll discuss in a bit. Now, from here, the police instruct the Ramses on how to engage with the kidnapper when the call comes in. And from there, basically all they can do is wait. But of course, 10 a.m. passes and there's no phone call. At around 1 o'clock, Detective Arndt instructs John and Fleet White to do a top-to-bottom search of the home. The two opt instead for a bottom-to-top search starting in the basement. And within five minutes, they discover Jean Benet's body in the wine cellar. John then picks his daughter up and carries her up the stairs. I realize this is a grieving father, but you'd think he would know that he should not move the body, right, for the investigation? I completely agree. I mean, some exceptions can be allowed, considering, as you said, he was a grieving dad. But it seems like he'd know he would have known better. And he also took the duct tape that was on her mouth off. So he clearly further contaminated a an already contaminated scene. Right, but I, I don't know. if You, you could pull the duct tape off because maybe you think she might still be alive, I guess. Yeah, yeah I guess that's sure reasonable, yeah. Um, so I can kind of see that. I mean... And that's I actually understand. a good point. I can't say that I would have done differently now that you mention yeah. it. Um, and I can understand running over and checking her, but like if it's very obvious that, that she's she's dead, I mean, you, I probably probably think clearly either but you know I, I guess you could just say maybe it's less his fault that he picked the body up and more the fault of the detective for you know having him search the home right now lisa Arndt orders him to put the body down and then she's the one who tells john that she's dead because apparently john asked her even though it was it was probably obvious but again grieving dad probably grasping at straws right yeah yeah now at 1 30 Detective Larry Mason and FBI Special Agent Ron Walker arrive and conduct a more thorough search of the basement. And I think at this point we should probably pause and discuss the state of Jean Benet's body. And and this will get pretty graphic, right? Yes, it does, and honestly, very disturbing. So if you have a problem with that, if if any of the listeners have trouble with that, you might want to fast forward a bit. So, the cause of death, according to pathologist John Meyer, was, quote, asphyxia by strangulation associated with craniocerebral trauma. In other words, she was strangled and hit really hard over the head. She was hit so hard, in fact, that it caused an eight and a half inch fracture in her skull. Black duct tape covered her mouth, and there was a ligature tied around her neck and another around her wrist. The cord around her neck was tied in a slip knot and was attached to the broken handle of a paintbrush. There was an extremely deep ligature furrow in her neck, indicating the brutality with which she was strangled. I mean, it's clear that a lot of force was used. However, in contrast to that degree of violence, she was also wrapped in a blanket with her Barbie nightgown placed beside her. With the level of... um of brutality here, it seems like the the whole ransom uh, theory just goes right out the window at that point. 
I mean, it really does. Let's be honest. It's odd to have a ransom note and then the dead child in the same house to begin with. But then when she's obviously been murdered by someone, it seems like someone that's very angry, right? That, that doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, I agree. But we're probably getting a little ahead of ourselves right there. So for now, let's just focus on the evidence and, and we'll discuss the implications later. Now, a small amount of foreign DNA was found underneath the fingernails of both hands, as well as on her panties. The majority of the DNA was from Jean Benet herself, and the rest is likely a composite from multiple donors. So it's hard to say exactly how significant or forensically relevant it is, but, but we'll discuss that a bit more later on. Right, and it's, you know, I just want to point out, especially with a child, it seems like it would be really easy for them to accumulate DNA from different people under their fingernails. You know, I mean, she goes around, she sees her friends, sees other people, she gives hugs, you know, kids don't wash their hands really well. It, it makes sense with a six-year-old, right? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely correct. I and mean, plus, remember, she had been to a Christmas party that night. So there's no telling, you know, how many people she hugged or shook hands with or, you know, what kids she played with. It could be anything. We don't know how relevant this is at all. Again, but that's not to say it isn't either, right? Right. Yeah, just just, just a point. At this point, unfortunately, we have to discuss the evidence that she may have been sexually assaulted. So, once again, if you're sensitive to this sort of thing, skip ahead. The autopsy revealed abrasions near her hymen dried blood on the outside of the vaginal opening, and a violet discoloration on the right labia majora. Myers claimed that these factors, along with the presence of bruising and vaginal mucus, were consistent with possible sexual assault. The autopsy also revealed what might have been tiny shards of wood inside Jean Bonnet's vagina suggesting that she may have actually been penetrated with the very paintbrush handle used to strangle her. Ugh. I know, it's, it's tragic. It's heartbreaking. I just can't imagine anyone hurting a child that way. It, it really I know, but me. then we're saying well-adjusted people. Clearly, this person was not. Now, Myers' report has been examined by a host of other medical experts. And most agree that Jean Bonnet was very likely sexually assaulted at the time of her death. There are some dissenting opinions. Uh, Dr. Richard Krugman, for example, who is the dean of the Colorado School of Medicine, says that there isn't enough information to reach a determination. But disturbingly, many of the experts who have examined the case believe that the evidence suggests not only sexual abuse at the time of her death, but prior to it as well. Well, that looks really bad on the family. I, mean, I suppose it could be a friend of the family or maybe a school teacher of some sort. She was in kindergarten at the time, so not necessarily the family. However, it's worth noting that Jean Benet had visited her pediatrician more than 20 times in the year leading up to her death. And those visits were disproportionately related to vaginal and urinary tract infections. Now, that seems like that should be a big red flag for a pediatrician. You would think so, especially since, you know, some research shows that 
there are higher rates of UTIs in child victims of sexual assault. And to add to that, her toileting had also regressed over the last few months to the point where she was wearing pull-ups and a plastic covering had to be placed over her mattress. Yeah, and that, that usually indicates like stress or some kind of trauma, at least. Exactly. Now, of course, none of these are necessarily indications of sexual abuse. I, I want to be very clear about that. There could very well be innocuous explanations for all of these, but combined, particularly with the evidence of sexual abuse, it does become harder to ignore. But, you know, you mentioned stress, and to be perfectly fair, remember that Patsy had had stage four ovarian cancer. So she was also, you know, quite recently dealing with the possibility that her mother might die. So that could very well be related here, right? And that would be a, a huge source of stress uh, for a child as well. So, yeah, I, I, no doubt there. That, that could definitely cause that. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think it's something we have to point out because that information looks very bad for the family. So now that we've laid out a rough timeline of the events leading up to Chambonet's death and discussed the state of her body, it's time to take a look at the investigation. And I think the easiest way to sum up the investigation would be that mistakes were made. I think it's already become pretty clear that there have been several mistakes made, but I'm assuming there are more than what we've already mentioned. No question. Yes, unfortunately, it, it does get quite a bit worse. And I think the best place to start there would be with John Eller, who was initially in charge of the investigation. He had never worked a homicide, and to be honest, it it showed. So when JonBenet's body was first found, Eller was taking care of a sick relative and couldn't make it to the crime scene. This technically left Sergeant Larry Mason as acting commander but he was still forced to clear every decision he made through Eller uh, via telephone. The first and arguably most important mistake was the failure to immediately interview the Ramses. Mason, who, by the way, was the only investigator with homicide experience, wanted to secure the crime scene immediately and put the Ramses up in separate hotel rooms pending interviews. But Eller ordered that the Ramses be treated as victims rather than suspects. He vetoed the interviews and said to treat the family with kid gloves because they were wealthy and influential. This is why so many people were allowed to enter the home and possibly destroying evidence in the process. I thought it was a bit odd from the beginning how you know the Ramses had friends over for emotional support. I mean, don't get me wrong, I can understand why they'd want to have emotional support there, but obviously it's already a crime scene, right? These yeah, I mean, and particularly since the the ransom note said not to alert anyone. Right, and then the fact that, you know, we've had a murder, you really need to lock it down at this point, right? Uh, you'd think so. And, you know, beyond that, it would make sense for the detective with homicide experience to be the lead on this, but just the fact that Eller couldn't even be there, why would they make him lead on it? Uh, it's a fine question. I mean, he was head of the detective unit uh, for the Boulder Police, so I guess it was just a matter of chain of command. Well, that maybe that's true. It just 
just so many things make so little sense about this one. Right. And unfortunately, it's going to get worse. Remember when I said that Linda Arndt hadn't secured the crime scene, but that it wasn't entirely her fault? Right. I'm assuming that was Eller as well. Yeah. You see, Eller ordered every available officer to attend a meeting back at the department at 1030, leaving Linda Arndt as the only officer on the scene. And he ignored multiple calls for backup from Arndt, who was in the impossible position of securing a three-story house with nearly 10 people inside. That makes so little sense. I mean, I'm assuming the meeting was about the Ramsey case, why wouldn't you just have it on the scene where everyone already is? It's a very good question. I know that it had something to do with the FBI, but I don't know if it's ever been, I don't know if we know exactly what they were discussing. But it seems like not the best time for it. Now, after an hour and a half of searching the home, Eller was ready to release the house back to the Ramseys. He infamously told Pete Hofstrom, who was an assistant district attorney, that if he said the police were finished with the Ramsey house, then they were finished. I can't imagine how you can possibly do all the work you need to do on a murder scene in an hour and a half. I mean, Hofstrom was was livid. I mean, he was flabbergasted that Eller would want to turn the house back over at this point. Now, Hofstrom is no saint himself, and he did plenty to hurt this investigation too, but right now he's kind of making sense. But again, you know, there's nothing he can do. It's not his investigation. It's Eller's. No. And you'd think it would take at least several days to work it up, right? That's what you would think. But Eller wanted to hand it back over within an hour and a half. And then, immediately after the body was found, Eller sent the FBI packing. It was no longer a missing child case, so their services weren't needed. Now, I understand that Local police, they have, you know, they have issues with the FBI trying to take over investigations. But, you know, you've got to think the FBI have access to so many more resources here. I mean, you'd think so. And to be fair, the FBI is usually really good about not stepping on toes, uh, you know, jurisdictionally. They usually just like to offer themselves as a resource. And that seems to be the case here. But Eller was old school and just seemed to resent the FBI's presence. Oh, and you know how I said that Larry Mason was the only detective on the case with homicide experience? Yeah. Well, not for long. You see, Eller falsely accused him of leaking information to CNN and then had him reassigned to traffic. I, Mason was eventually vindicated when, uh, when it turned out that the leak actually came from the Ramsey's attorneys. But even after this came out, Eller didn't want to apologize. So it seems like this guy is basically just letting his ego ruin the entire investigation. I mean, that seems to be the case. You know, clearly not inside the guy's head, don't know what he was thinking, but it appeared to be a scenario where this is my investigation and, damn it, we'll do things my way, even when his way was incredibly stupid. Well, he basically has a laundry list of screw-ups at this point. That Tell me that's all of them, right? Well, one final one at least that I have listed, uh, he neglected to question local pedophiles and sex offenders, which seems like it would be just standard operating procedure. 
I think that is standard operating procedure. It definitely makes sense. I feel like in almost all of these cases we've covered where, you know, a child goes missing, not even always a child, like a young woman, they always make the rounds of everyone on the sex offender registry. Yeah, no question. I mean, it just seems like it's common sense that, that people who have harmed children in the past might have done it again, right? Yeah, I mean, at least cover your bases on it. But. Yeah, I mean, there's just there's no telling how much damage that John Eller did to the investigation in just the first few days. It, it almost seems like he's doing it on purpose. I, I'm not saying I think he really was. It's just so bad. I mean, I think it's more it's more fair to say that if he had been doing it on purpose, he probably couldn't have done a better job of screwing it up. <laughs> yeah, I, I like I like that. I like the way you put it there. Now, unfortunately, the mistakes from the case were not limited to the Boulder PD. In fact, arguably, the behavior most detrimental to this investigation came from District Attorney Alex Hunter. You see, he was never convinced that the Ramseys were involved in their daughter's death, which led to some extremely bizarre decisions, particularly for a prosecutor. Hunter effectively set his office in direct opposition to the Boulder PD and the FBI. He decided that his office was going to provide balance to the investigation, that the case would benefit from an approach, say, similar to a defense attorney's, which is incredible coming from a prosecutor. I mean, okay, we've had a lot of cases of prosecutors overreaching. I don't know, I can't (laughs) recall one where they just decided they were going to help take out over the, the investigation. Pre- exactly. It's, it's so bizarre. Right. And they're going to bring balance to the investigation. Yeah. Like that- I mean, of all the times that, we, that we'd like to see prosecutors behave more like, like defense attorneys, this one. I, I just cannot imagine what was going through this guy's head, what he thought he was going to do. Well, I, I think we can explain that going forward. You see, uh, the Boulder police and the FBI lean towards the Ramses as the primary suspects. So Hunter wanted to look into alternative possibilities. Uh, he brought on Detective Lou Smith, who soon became the leading advocate of what's commonly known as the intruder theory, which we're going to discuss a little later on. So just to be clear, the DA brought in an investigator to investigate the case in a manner directly contradictory to the direction that his own police department was taking. You know, that intruder theory, as I recall, gained a lot of traction because that was all over the news. It did, and mostly because Lou Smith was a very well-respected detective. But again, we're going to get to that stuff a little later. So, as you might imagine, there was very little trust between the Boulder PD and the DA's office. That definitely seems to be the case. Right. And it didn't help matters when Alex Hunter gave the Ramseys access to the police files before they submitted to an interview. What? Yeah. See, John and Patsy insisted on being able to review their previous statements to the police before speaking to them formally. And the DA allowed it. How can you possibly give a suspect access to the files? That's a fine question, sir. 
Well, I mean, I, mean, I think I think you, you're getting the point here. Like it was exceedingly obvious that Alex Hunter wanted no part of prosecuting the Ramses. Obviously not. Was he friends with them? So he wasn't personally. However, there were people within his office who had some, I would say, or especially the Boulder PD said, inappropriate relationships with the Ramses and their attorneys. Uh, Lou Smith, for example, the investigator that he brought in, had kind of bonded with John over uh, religion. And Assistant DA Hofstrom had a longtime friendship with Ramsey attorney Mike Bynum. Apparently, Hofstrom and Bynum had like weekly breakfast together. And this infuriated the Boulder police. And when they requested that he stop, he very publicly refused to do so. Why would a DA have such a strong friendship with a defense attorney? Well, I mean, they were friends from way back. But that doesn't mean that you should be still having breakfast when you're opposed to each other in a case like this. Definitely not. I can can see why the police were upset. Exactly. Oh, but things get worse. At the height of the bad blood between the agencies, Alex Hunter was caught conspiring with an undercover journalist, uh, Jeff Shapiro, to dig up dirt on Eller. Hunter told Shapiro that if he looked hard enough, there was probably a sexual harassment scandal somewhere in Eller's past. And, and this went over exactly how you'd expect. How can the police in the DA's office have such a bad relationship? Well, when the DA seems to be doing everything in their power to disregard the police's investigation and seems to be buddies with their primary suspects and their primary suspects' attorneys, I mean, what other outcome could there be? None. It's going to be a train wreck. And that's exactly what it was. However, at this point, things get a little better because in October of 1997, Mark Beckner, took over for Eller as the lead on the investigation. And he quickly got to work correcting some of the issues and problems with the investigation. Particularly, he made sure that other potential suspects, including local sex offenders, were fully vetted. His goal was to take away every out Hunter had to avoid charging the Ramseys. But eventually, despite their efforts, it became clear to the Boulder police that Hunter wasn't going to charge the Ramses, So, Beckner began pushing strongly for a grand jury. Now, of course, Hunter wanted nothing to do with a grand jury. He was afraid they might actually, you know, indict. And he wasn't at all convinced he could win in court. So, his policy was pretty simple. Delay, delay, delay. And it might have worked, if not for one thing. Steve Thomas's scathing resignation letter, which he shared with nearly every major news network. Uh, you see, Thomas was a widely respected detective who had been on the Ramsey case from the beginning. Uh, he had like an encyclopedic knowledge of the case. But his frustrations with the DA's refusal to charge the Ramseys eventually bowled over, and he decided to share those frustrations with the world. In the letter, he talks about how the district attorney constantly dismissed or rationalized evidence against the Ramseys. 
how even the opinions of experts, including the FBI, were disregarded. He says that they were denied access to telephone records, uh, bank statements, and even search warrants. He talks about how Hunter shared police reports and physical evidence with the Ramseys. He described one instance where he served a search warrant only to learn later that the Ramsey's defense attorneys were given copies of the evidence investigators found. So, unsurprisingly, the public response was not kind to Alex Hunter. I'm just glad the information finally got out there and people knew what was going on at that point. Well, I think Thomas sacrificed his career to get this information out. I mean, he, he was forced to turn in his badge. Uh, he, he became a carpenter after this, and he was only, I believe, 36 years old at the time. I mean, he planned on being a cop for the rest of his life, and he was so frustrated and appalled by the district attorney's behavior that he gave his career up to tell the public about this. Honestly, after going through that, I can't say I blame him, though. I mean, I would probably want to get out of that line of work as well if I'd gone through that with the DA. Yeah, I mean, in a a later interview, uh, he said that he misses police work, but he damn sure doesn't miss it in Boulder. So that's kind of where he was at. But his letter had a profound effect. Like I said, public opinion was now strongly against Alex Hunter. His only recourse was finally to convene a grand jury. I mean, politically, he had no alternative, right? Right, right. Yet his efforts to avoid a trial against the Ramses didn't end there. You see, under normal circumstances, grand juries hear only what the prosecutor wants them to, right? Legally, they aren't required to present any exculpatory evidence at all. They aren't even held to the same, you know, like evidentiary standards that would exist in a trial. Prosecutors can, and almost always do, present an entirely one-sided case. I mean, that's why you often hear, hear it said that, you know, you can indict a ham sandwich, right? Right. Yet, Alex Hunter did things a bit differently yet again. He allowed Lou Smith to present the intruder theory to the grand jury in an obvious effort to dissuade the jurors from indicting the Ramses. And it appeared to work. That may be the only time in history that a prosecutor tried not to get someone indicted. I mean, that's always the course they take when they don't want an indictment. They suddenly allow a much more fair grand jury process. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that's the trick. This is so backwards to pretty much all the other cases we've done, because usually you have a prosecutor that is just so overzealous wanting to indict someone. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. And the thing is, like, I don't even particularly care for our grand jury process, right? I think it's really unfair that, you know, uh, there's a completely one-sided case being shown to the to the grand jury. But... That is the process we use, and under any other circumstances, someone providing a, an alternate theory to the one the police were presenting wouldn't be within a hundred miles of that grand jury. But it was this time. Yep. So, when the grand jury finished, Hunter gave a carefully worded and now infamous press conference where he heavily implied that the grand jury opted not to indict. 
Yet, 14 years later, when grand jury documents were finally unsealed, it was revealed that the jurors did, in fact, vote to indict John and Patsy Ramsey. Instead, it was Alex Hunter who refused to go forward with the charges. But, but rather than admit this and face the political consequences, he, he decided to scapegoat the grand jury and hide behind a gag order for a decade and a half. I didn't even know that you could just back out of an indictment like that. I, I mean, I know that you could, um, I know that the prosecutors oftentimes later on when they find exculpatory evidence will drop the charges. Right. But I thought if the grand jury chose to indict, you had to at least move on, move forward with the indictment at that point. This may be different, you know, depending on the jurisdiction. But as far as I know, the prosecutor always has final say. You know, they can choose whether or not to sign the indictment. But I mean, that's not really the point here, right? The point is that he got up and gave this speech and heavily implied that the grand jury had chosen not to indict. Because they were under a gag order, right? Yeah. Like, it was 14 years later before we found out that actually, even with you know the way he tried to manipulate events, that they still chose to indict. That is absolutely ridiculous. What were the charges that the grand jury chose to indict on? So there were two charges for each parent. So each one of these I read uh, counted for both of them, right? There was one okay. for each. The first is that they, quote, did unlawfully, knowingly, recklessly, and feloniously permit a child to be unreasonably placed in a situation which posed a threat of injury to the child's life or health, which resulted in the death of John Benet Ramsey. The second was that they did unlawfully, knowingly, and feloniously render assistance to a person with intent to hinder, delay, and prevent the discovery, detention, apprehension, prosecution, conviction, and punishment of such person for the commission of a crime, knowing the person being assisted has committed and was suspected of the crime of murder in the first degree and child abuse resulting in death. In other words, they weren't certain which parent killed Jean Benet, but they thought one of them did and that the other helped cover it up. Well, to be honest, I'm pretty sure they could have indicted the DA on that second charge, too. <laughs> You're probably right. Though, I mean, I, I'll be honest. Like, I don't have a lot of sympathy for Alex Honor, but here's one thing I will say. He might have been right that if he went to court, he'd have lost. He could very well have been right. Maybe they didn't have the evidence. But the shit he pulled, I mean, luckily, did not earn him brownie points with the public. No, no, and I, I understand why, but I can also understand that the way the first few days of the investigation occurred, mm -hmm. uh, you know, after the murder, any defense attorney could pick that apart, I would think, with, especially with any kind of physical evidence. You're probably right, but we're about to get to some of the evidence. So we've discussed the events that led up to Jean Benet's death. We've looked at the medical evidence and uh, discuss the investigation and the conflict between the Boulder police and the DA's office. But thus far, I've been careful to avoid any real discussion about what actually happened to Jean Benet, or more specifically, who killed her. Which brings us to the suspects. 
So the suspects in this case all fall under two basic categories, inside job and intruder did it. They're pretty self-explanatory. So let's begin with the intruder theory. As the name implies, this refers to the possibility that someone outside of the Ramsey's immediate family snuck into the home and murdered Jean Benet. Uh, this was the theory popularized by Lou Smith, who was the detective brought on by the DA. Now, before we discuss specific intruders, uh, let's take a look at some of the evidence that supports the theory more generally. For starters, as Lou Smith demonstrated, it is possible for an intruder to have entered in through an unlocked basement window. On camera, he dropped into the window well and slipped in through the window. He was basically just trying to prove that it was possible. Uh, a lot of people, I think his quote was, that a lot of people say that you'd have to be a midget to get in there. So he, he, he just wanted to demonstrate it for the camera. Adding to the possibility was a suitcase that was placed on the floor underneath the window that had an unidentified footprint and a smudge on the wall that could have been created by an intruder. And in addition to the window, police also discovered that one of the doors to the house was unlocked. So the window method may not have even been necessary. So it's certainly possible for an intruder to have entered the home. Uh, next, advocates of the intruder theory point out that the samples found underneath JonBenet's fingernails and on her panties don't match any member of the Ramsey family. Well, you did say that that DNA was a composite of several different donors, though, right? It, well, it's possible that it was a composite of different donors, uh, perhaps even likely. But, you know, again, it, it may be from a single person, right? That's, that's a possibility. Right now, I'm just pointing out the evidence that, you know, people who advocate for the intruder theory like to present. Okay. So, next, the evidence for sexual assault it does seem to cut against the notion that a family member was involved. While not inconceivable, uh, it is strange that one parent would protect another that was caught abusing their child. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It, I can't imagine anyone defending a guilty parent over that. No, like if you walked in on that, your first thought would certainly not be to cover this up. No, you, you have to get the child away from the, the dangerous parent, obviously. Right. So, in addition, the cord and tape found on JonBenet's body can't be sourced to the Ramsey's house, which might suggest that the killer brought the items with him, or, or her, be it the case. While that's true, if it was one of the parents, they could have just gotten rid of the rest of it so it wouldn't be there as evidence. No question, right? That, then, that, that's absolutely a possibility. Right, it doesn't but, but take again, a genius. I'm just trying to point out what advocates of the theory say. Okay, well, that's fine. I'm just It doesn't take a genius to figure that out, though. Right, you, you make a good point. It's a point that's been brought up many times. And there's also a little more to that that we're going to discuss in a bit. Now, there were also marks found on Jean Benet's face and back that Smith suggests... Uh, could have been made by a stun gun, which he theorized might have been used to subdue Jean Benet. And Dr. Michael Doberson, an expert on stun guns, agrees. 
Uh, he tested the theory on like pigs. They were anesthetized at the time, just to be clear. And he found that the marks left were similar in size, shape, and color to the ones found on Jean Bonnet. But would you need a stun gun to subdue a six-year-old? It's a fine question. And another question is, would it subdue a six-year-old? I mean, it's not like stun guns knock people unconscious, at least not from what I've ever seen. I, I mean, I'm not saying that they couldn't have used it just for cruelty purposes, but I don't think you would necessarily need it to subdue a six-year-old. I mean, plus there's the blow to the head. I mean, you know, we don't know when that occurred, but you certainly wouldn't have need to, needed to subdue her after that. Right. But again, just pointing out the evidence. Now, maybe most importantly, proponents of the intruder theory point out that the brutal method of Jean Bonnet's death is inconsistent with a parent as the killer. I mean, it's hard to imagine that a parent could cause that sort of damage to their child. I mean, even in a rage. I, I completely agree with that, actually. I mean, yeah. And I mean, and even if they were simply covering up an accident, why use a garage when there are much less violent ways to end the kid's life? Yeah, that. That 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 part of it does make sense. I will say that that part of the yeah. I, mean, I think that's sense. a real problem for you know uh, people who think the the Ramses did it. It's something that at least has to be considered, right? No, I, I agree. Okay, so let's talk suspects. Now there aren't many serious suspects for the intruder theory. It's mostly just the suggestion that an intruder is a possibility, right? Mm-hmm. However, there are a few names that are commonly thrown around. One is a man named Gary Oliva, or Oliva. I'm not really sure how to pronounce it. Um, Oliva was a convicted pedophile from Boulder who exhibited some pretty bizarre behavior following John Bonet's murder. Oliva's friend, Michael Vale, apparently told police a really troubling story. Uh, he claimed that shortly after John Bonet's murder, that a distraught Oliver called him claiming that he had hurt or killed a little girl. I think it was hurt. And equally troubling was the fact that the garrote used to strangle Jean Benet was apparently similar to one that Oliver used when he tried to strangle his mother. I mean, it sounds bad, but it's hardly hard evidence. I mean, right. I mean, I don't know if you could really call that circumstantial evidence. It's just, it's an interesting anecdote, I think we could say, right? Right, yeah. It's suspicious behavior. And years later, while serving a sentence for, I believe it was possession of child pornography, Oliva confessed to murdering Jean Bonnet uh, in a letter to his uh, buddy Vale. He claimed it was an accident that Jean Bonnet had tripped and hit her head, I believe. Um, and then it just got really creepy. He said that he loved Jean Benet and that she was different than the other girls, which I'm pretty sure by that he meant the other girls he had assaulted. But as sick as the man is, there's no evidence at all that he was actually involved in Jean Benet's murder. After being thoroughly vetted, he was eventually cleared by investigators. The things you were saying there... It almost sounds delusional to me, honestly. Well, he was. There's no question. I mean, he made some 
really bizarre and quite frankly disgusting comments about Jean Bonnet. Like he referred to her as a goddess. Like he had this weird, creepy fixation with her. But this was a fixation he had picked up later after she after she got into the media, right? Yeah, that that happens sometimes. Some strange people out there, but it happens. Yeah, uh, Gary Oliva is one of them. You know, but it's almost certain that he had nothing to do with Jean Bonnet's death. I, I do have to point out one thing here that that really is neither here nor there with the Jean Bonnet case. Mm-hmm. But the fact that this guy Vale has maintained a relationship with that guy for fifteen or twenty years <laughs> bothers right. me. Who wants to be friends with that guy? It could be that he was just trying to get information from him because I know that he suspected him of killing Jean Bonnet for a long time because it was a very long time between when he told him that he had, I think, hurt or killed a little girl from when he actually admitted to it being Jean Bonnet. So I think that Vale might have been keeping that relationship with him because he wanted him to confess. That, that does make more sense, at least. So... Next up is Bill McReynolds. Uh, McReynolds was a retired journalism professor who the Ramses hired to play Santa Claus at their Christmas parties. I, I think he was, I think he played Santa Claus in 95 and 96. They always threw these big extravagant Christmas parties. It's been suggested that he paid like a bit too much attention to Jean Benet. Um, the evidence against McReynolds, if you can call it that, is basically this. Apparently, he was seen giving Jean Benet a Christmas card, which read, you will receive a special gift after Christmas. And McReynolds' wife once wrote a play which involved a young girl being murdered in her basement. And then lastly, there's speculation that SBTC, which was how the letter was signed, that it might stand for Santa Bill and the Critic. Bill's wife was a movie critic. That that seems like it's reaching to me, the SBTC thing. Uh, not exactly compelling stuff, right? No. I, I remember hearing about this guy in the news, though. They talked about the Santa Claus. You the know? killer Santa? Yeah. Um, oh, they, they ruined this man's life. They really did. You know, I've got to say the fact the Ramses hired this guy, you know, for their party, right? It would make sense he would pay more attention to their child. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, and and how can you say that it's creepy for a Santa Claus to be giving gifts or cards to a kid at a party? I mean, like, isn't that literally what he was paid for? Yes, by the child's parents. Exactly. So I mean, yeah, that that just seems like a really circumstantial, coincidental stuff to me. Right. Now he was looked into by police, and from what I understand, he willingly gave hair, handwriting, and DNA samples. But he was never seriously considered as a suspect. Just by the media, apparently. Well, not just the media. Because this none of this stopped the Ramses from publicly naming him a suspect in their book, The Death of Innocence. But unfortunately, Bill McReynolds is no longer around to defend himself. As he died, I believe it was 2002 or 2003, with a cloud hanging over his head. The poor guy. You know, all he was doing was his his job as the Santa Claus, right? As far as I can tell, the man did nothing wrong at all, and his life was turned upside down. Yeah, just got hired by the wrong people. Yeah. So 
lastly is John Mark Carr, which I'm who I'm sure you remember. Oh yes, I do. Carr is easily the most well-known suspect on the list. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, he was a former school teacher living in Thailand, where he was dodging child pornography charges from the states. In 2006, for whatever reason, he randomly decided to confess to killing Jean Benet. John Mark Carr was an insane, pathological liar, and he did not kill Jean Benet. Everyone knows this, so I mean, there's no point even wasting time on this one. Yeah, this guy was just crazy. It, it almost seems like he was thinking that he would become some sort of star or some sort of like famous killer if he. You know, yeah, he clearly wanted attention. Yeah, and unfortunately, the media was happy to give it to him. And of course, they turned it into an absolute circus, like they did with everything pertaining to John Bonet. Yeah, well, well, with Carr especially, I remember hearing about Carr and and the the Killer Santa Claus so much, and it seems like it was just you know trying to 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 draw away from the actual facts. Yeah, it really was. I mean, he was paraded on national television, uh, you know, arrested, but. It was clear from the beginning that he had nothing to do with Jean Benet's death. He was just an attention-seeking psychopath. And really, that's all there is to Jean-Marc Carr. Did not kill Jean Benet Ramsey, and I think we can all agree on that. So now we can move on to the actual likely suspects? I think that's fair to say. So, up to this point, I've tried and likely failed to simply present the evidence without making my personal biases too obvious. But from here on out, I'm just going to give my honest opinion. And in the spirit of that honesty, I'm going to tell you that I'm not particularly convinced by the intruder theory. Now, I don't claim to know what happened that night to Jean Benet, but I do lean more heavily towards Jean Benet's death being an inside job. Well, honestly, I would say most people that remember the case or have looked into it uh, lean toward the inside job theory as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's fair to say. Now, of course, to be fair to people who advocate for the intruder theory, as we discussed, I think there is evidence that can be interpreted as supporting the intruder theory. I mean, I think it's a reasonable belief, but I don't find it particularly compelling myself. I just don't think you can rule it out. No, no, you can't rule it out. But let's get to the evidence of the inside job, a.k.a. why the Ramseys probably did it, or someone in the Ramsey family at least. So I guess first the ransom note comes to mind. I mean, as we discussed earlier, it just it reeks of staging. And not to mention the, the pen and legal pad used to write the note came from inside the home. And then were put back where they came from after it was finished. Yeah, you would think they would have, have at least thought to ditch that, right? I mean, that must have been the politest, neatest killer in history. I mean, not to mention the huge problem with, if you're going to kill the girl, why write the note to begin with? Right, no one would do that. Again, it seems like staging. It just seems like, uh, look over here, right? Don't look over here. Look over now. Yeah, it's red herring. That's the word. And then the amount they asked for being roughly the same as John's Christmas bonus. 
that seems like an obvious effort to place the blame on someone who was familiar with the family, particularly John's business. Right, but then to call themselves a foreign faction made no sense. No sense at all. And then, of course, there's the handwriting, which, and admittedly, I'm no expert, but it bears a striking resemblance to samples from Patsy. I mean, they look damn dissimilar. Oh, yeah, and so many people have commented on that through the years, too. I mean, some of them being experts. I mean, lots of experts have looked at it, and while most of them say simply that Patsy can't be ruled out, there are others who have claimed she did author the note. Uh, Sina Wong, I think I'm pronouncing that right, uh, she said that it was highly probable that Patsy wrote the note. Uh, She found, I think it was more than like 200 similarities between the ransom note and Patsy's samples. And, And, you know, while handwriting analysis doesn't definitively prove anything, it is, I think, interesting evidence. And just from looking at it, part of me feels like you don't even really need an expert. Some of them just look exactly alike. Right, and this is one of those cases. I mean... There are several words that 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 come to mind. Uh, carefully, that, faction, and letter. If you compare Patsy writing those to the ransom note, they look almost identical. There, there was also a forensic document examiner. Uh, his name was Gideon Epstein. And he also concluded that, in fact, he was much more definitive. He said there was no doubt that Patsy wrote the note. Well, I don't think that we can definitively say she did it because you have disagreement among among experts. Right. But it's it's at least likely, right? But let's remember that that disagreement doesn't extend past she can't be excluded. Yeah, that's it looks bad at any rate. I mean, and I'll just be honest, watching Patsy in in one of her police interviews pretending like she can't recognize her own handwriting doesn't exactly give me confidence in the woman. And I want to be clear, for, for anyone who hasn't seen this particular clip, I don't mean that she's looking at the ransom note or someone else's handwriting and says she doesn't recognize it. She's looking at a sample that she herself submitted and pretends like she doesn't know who it belongs to. I remember that, but I will at least say that going through something like this, may have driven her a bit insane. I mean, I'm sure it did, right? I mean, fair enough. But, I mean, in other interviews, the lady seemed quite lucid. In fact, she was a firecracker in a lot of those. I do remember those. And then there was their reaction, or let's say non-reaction, to the deadline for the ransom passing without a phone call. I mean, according to Lisa Arndt, they didn't seem concerned at all. Almost like they never expected a call in the first place. Exactly. You'd think a parent would be really panicked when that deadline passes. But, of course, you know, I don't honestly believe that they thought one was coming. And, again, when Lisa Arndt recommended that John and Fleet White search the house, she says that he made a beeline straight to the basement. Again, almost like he knew what he would find. These things are concerning. The Ramsey's behavior after their daughter's death was, I mean, I don't know, does Bizarre even cover it, Daniel? No, it does not. It really doesn't. 
I mean, John was overheard by one of the police officers talking to his pilot, trying to catch a plane to Atlanta. And this was like like a couple hours after Jean Bonnet's body was found. Yeah, I didn't remember that part, but that is really strange. I mean, yeah, like like you can just leave. Yeah, oh, okay, well, nothing to see here anymore. Yeah, well, maybe he was maybe he was trying to get out of town so that you know they wouldn't he wouldn't be able to talk to the cops anymore. Uh, see, I think he just hit the nail on the head there because I mean it's well known that the Ramses avoided police interviews for months. I believe it was literally four months. I think was the was the time, and they had some really really weird demands before they would uh, even do so. One of which was that they had to be interviewed together. And that there was like an hour time limit on the interview. I mean, does this sound like something that, that the parents of a deceased child, of a murdered child would do? Absolutely not. You would think they would they would cooperate completely. Try to get I mean, the that's police. generally what happens. Yeah, get them all the information they need so they can catch whoever did this. And, you know, I think we've been pretty consistent, you know, throughout our episodes that that we never begrudge someone an attorney, right? Like, I never like to look at getting an attorney as evidence of guilt. But that doesn't mean that this behavior is not completely bizarre. They lawyered up and even got a public relations firm. Who does that? Well, someone that's very wealthy does, I suppose. But you don't need PR if your child was just murdered. Yeah, and... While they didn't talk to the police for four months, that didn't stop them from going on CNN and giving an interview. Giving misleading interviews. Uh, yeah, I would say so. I mean, Patsy apparently was trying to frighten every kid in Boulder when she you know, made that infamous comment about keeping your baby safe because someone's out there. Well, right, and, and what they did to that poor party Santa Claus as well. well that was the name of the game with the Ramses. They seem to point the finger at, at anyone and everyone except themselves. Well, I mean, that's I guess that's what you would do in the case, right? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, if you're guilty, right? Right. Now, you remember earlier when I was presenting the case for the intruder theory, and I said that the duct tape and cord could not be sourced to the house? Yes. And you mentioned that they could have been thrown away, that that was, you know an obvious thing that could have happened. Well, yeah, that's, that's what you would do. I mean, if you've watched investigation discovery, that's what you would do. Right. And I said, well, there's a little more to that story. Well, would you like to hear that? Yes. Yes. You see the duct tape and the rope for the ligature, it turns out were likely purchased by Patsy Ramsey sometime in December. And we know this because we have receipts from McGuckin's hardware store that showed purchases for the exact amounts of the two items. Now, they weren't itemized, you know, meaning the items purchased weren't listed, but two of the purchase amounts match the items in the store. There's actually an interesting story about how the, uh, these receipts were obtained. A bookkeeper from McGuckin's, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but we're just going to go with McGuckin's. But a bookkeeper from McGuckin's contacted the police in, I think it was January, and claimed that a man who identified himself as John wanted information about purchases made on his American Express card in December. 
the specific dates were, I want to say the second and the tenth or the ninth. It was one of those two dates. Uh, anyways, there were two separate dates that he wanted receipts for. Uh, the caller said that he would call back on the 20th, you know, to give them time to get this information for him, right? Uh-huh. So the police set up a recording device in case the man called back, and he did. When asked to verify his card number, uh, he gave the wrong one, but said that it could have been purchased under his wife's card. Any guesses what her name was? Patsy? Patricia? That's the one. Now, now to be fair, it does turn out that this caller wasn't actually John Ramsey. Uh, it was a private investigator. I don't remember his name, but his clients were mostly tabloid, so he was probably working for a tabloid magazine just trying to get dirt. But even though this wasn't actually John Ramsey calling, the receipts were real. Wow. It's crazy that a tabloid investigator was managed to uncover that. Or cause it to be uncovered. Right. And it's also worth noting that that duct tape, according to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, contained fibers that were consistent with those found on Patsy Ramsey's jacket, the one she had worn on Christmas. Now, just to be clear, there are, there are issues with fiber analysis. It's not the most forensically valid evidence, but I, it's still worth pointing out. Well, that's true, but also, if I recall correctly, John did remove that duct tape from Jean Benet's mouth, right? Yes. Well, I mean, did did he possibly drop it at that point, or you know, I mean, they could have gotten those fibers elsewhere, you know? If I remember correctly, and I could be wrong, I believe he placed it on the blanket, or he sat it down and Fleet White placed it on the blanket. But either way, I'm pretty sure it ended up back on the blanket that Jean Benet was wrapped in. Well, I could easily see how fibers from the jacket would end up on the blanket, though. Well, I mean, besides, what does that really mean? I mean, her fibers could have been anywhere in that house. She lived there. Yeah, that's that's very true. And specifically, since they were taken off, you know, again, it, it doesn't mean anything. But, you know, when you add it to the rest of the evidence, uh, maybe it's worth it's at least worth discussing. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, uh there's quite a bit of, you know, at least internet speculation that Jean Benet's brother had something to do with her death. Yeah, I would say the theory that Burke was involved in Jean Benet's uh, death in some way is probably the most popular current theory, at least on the, the side of the Ramseys did it, right? Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll, work, I'll walk you through it as best I can. So, when Burke was younger, he seemed to have some issues and maybe some jealousy towards his sister. There's one story where he hit her with a golf club. And and to be clear, he did so in anger, apparently, not accidentally. He also had, let's say, some scatological problems. Um, He liked to place poop in places where poop doesn't belong. It's claimed that, for example, he had at one point pooped in Jean Benet's bed. I believe detectives found uh, feces on the wall. I don't know how much, but I believe that that was discovered. And there's another story where he apparently rubbed feces on a box of chocolates or some other candy that Jean Benet had gotten for Christmas. So, like I said, Burke had some issues. Well, you know, the problems you're describing, though, in a child like that could definitely 
um, they could be brought on by the stress of Patsy's cancer as well. You're absolutely right. I'm just discussing the theory as best I understand it. Okay. So the usual Burke did it theory goes something like this. It starts with Jean Bonnet's autopsy. Apparently, a substance that might have been undigested pineapple or was uh, fibrous and consistent with pineapple was found inside of Jean Bonnet. Now, pineapple mixed with milk, for some reason, was a favorite snack of the Ramsey children. And there was, in fact, a, a bowl of pineapple and milk found on the table. Like There are pictures of it that were taken by detectives. Now, Patsy says that she has no idea where this came from. John says the same thing. Even Burke says the same thing. Yet, Patsy's and Burke's fingerprints are on the bowl of pineapple, and there was a glass of tea with Burke's fingerprints on it. So the story goes something like this, that Jean Benet was in fact not asleep at the time, and that she came back downstairs and maybe grabbed a piece of pineapple from Burke's snack. And apparently this made him snap, and he hit her over the head. The usual suggestion is with a flashlight. Now, I think some people th- say that from there, he, he used the garret, the, the garage to drag her downstairs. I don't know exactly. I'm sure there's a number of different theories, but that's the one that I'm most familiar with. And then the parents discovered this and covered it up. And that's why the Ramsey's behavior was so strange. And to be honest, the one thing I think this theory has going for it, you know, we said earlier that one of the main problems with the Ramsey's did it theory was if one of the parents found out the other was molesting their child, they're not going to defend them, right? They're not going to, they're going to protect them. Right. But if the person who hurt their child was their other child, that might very well explain the Ramsey's bizarre behavior. Yeah. Especially when you've already lost one child, you don't want to lose the other. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think anyone who's seen the interviews with Burke would say the kid's a little strange. I mean, watching him make, you know, like hacking motions when asked what, when he was asked what he thought happened to his sister, um, him saying that, you know, just casually saying he was trying to get on him with his life. I think those were his exact words. Maybe not, or something similar to that when he was asked how he was doing. Right. Yeah. Uh, he seemed completely nonplussed by the whole situation. But again, he was a kid. And how old was Burke again? Burke was nine at the time of Jean Benet's death. Yeah, so I really don't think there is any standard way you can expect a nine-year-old to act in this circumstance. I, I completely agree. I mean, that doesn't stop me from thinking that his behavior was, was strange, but at least in his case, he's got an excuse. He was a kid. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the elder Ramses do not get that same courtesy. So that's the basic outline of the Burke did it theory. I mean, I could not possibly go through all of the different variations I've read online that we would be here for hours, but that's, that's the basic outline at least. Yeah. With the lack of any hard evidence, I, I can't endorse that exactly. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, like I said, it, it has its merits as a theory. I mean, for one, I think it explains one of the most bizarre things about the case, and that is John and Patsy's behavior. If they were protecting one of their children, 
the things they did, you know, might make some sense. Especially when you've just lost one child, you don't want to lose the other one. Right. I can definitely see them, you know, we've lost one kid. This is what we have to do not to lose another one. You know, but at the same time, he was a small child. You know, while that it may have traumatized him going through it, he probably would have just, you know, gone through some, you know, psychological treatment and then been done with it. It's not like he was going to go to jail. No, in fact, um, he was too young to even be indicted at the time. Well, no, you're not going to indict a nine-year-old on murder charges anyway. I mean, even even if you could, like that's. Obviously, if he's a troubled child, he needs help. He doesn't need to be incarcerated. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, even if Burke did do it, I mean, he was still just a kid. But th- that's what I'm trying to get to with that is it seems strange to cover it up when there really would have been that many consequences other than just. Oh, I see what opinion. you're saying. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a fair point, too. Right. But of course, with them being wealthy, they, they probably want their they didn't want their son to look bad either. So I don't know. I mean, appearances were very important to the Ramseys, particularly Patsy. You know, she was a, a former beauty queen herself um, and liked to present this image of like the perfect household. So that could have had something to do with it too. Well, you know, you know as you point that out though, that, that makes me think that maybe she would have been willing to cover up for John as well though. Even if he had molested his daughter? Well, if she's that hung up on appearances. Well, yeah. I I want to believe that no one cares about appearances that much. I, I don't think your average person does, but I, I don't know. I, I guess when we talk about the wealthy and how things are different for them, they they feel like they have to keep up those appearances. And, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe 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 this has nothing to do with it, right? But, uh, but it's it's a fair point, at least. No, no question. Yeah. So, personally, where I'm at is I'm pretty convinced that the Ramses know or knew what happened to their daughter since, you know, Patsy's dead these days. I don't know exactly what happened, and I, and I, I don't think there's enough evidence to make definitive theories. But I cannot get beyond the way the Ramses acted after their child's death. Like, it went beyond bizarre and into they're hiding something. Yeah, I, you know, and I think most people agree with you there. Well, like I said earlier, you can't rule out the intruder theory, but their behavior can definitely make you doubt it. Yeah, it, it, no question. I mean, yeah, like you said, I think the intruder theory is plausible. Uh, but again, it's not like there's any evidence of any actual intruder. But that would be nice. I've often wondered myself if there's any way that you know, one parent knew what happened and was covering it up, but the other one had no idea. Though that seems unlikely to me because they were both acting so strange. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's a possibility, but if that were the case, right, doesn't it seem like one of them would have really wanted to help the police find their daughter's killer? It seems like they would have figured out very quickly that the other one that something's wrong here. Right, Why because, don't you want us to talk to the police? Yeah, one is cooperating, one isn't. And that doesn't seem to be the case at all here. No, th- they both stonewalled immediately. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and I'll be honest, this is probably not a popular opinion amongst the, the people who are convinced the Ramseys did it. And, and to be honest, hey, I'm with you, right? I, I think they had something to do with it, too. At the very least, I think they knew what happened to their daughter. But when I look at the evidence... I can't say that Alex Hunter was wrong not to want to take it to court. 
I mean, obviously the way he behaved was appalling. He acted like an absolute weasel. But I mean, do you think I'm wrong that that, I, that maybe there wasn't enough evidence to to indict anyone? No. Or at least I mean, obviously there was enough evidence to indict because they, they did. But I'm not certain that they could have won in court. It no. seems to me that there's definitely reasonable doubt here. You're you're correct in that, and I think in most cases the DA would just pass on it, and that would be the end of it. But the fact that there was so much media attention, I mean, what was he going to do? But, you know, let, let's not defend Alex Hunter too much here, right? Just because I think that he might have been right, that they couldn't have gotten a conviction, doesn't at all mean I agree with the way he handled the investigation. I mean, the way that he pitted his uh, office against the FBI and the Boulder police, I mean, it's just, it was stupid and appalling. Yeah, he did. And it did should. irreparable harm to the investigation. He should not have done that. But I can't say that most of the harm to the investigation wasn't done in those first few days when they didn't cover all their bases. Right, with Eller. And that's another problem for any potential trial. A defense attorney, even a bad one, would have a field day with this. Yeah, I'm, I mean, you know, without collecting evidence at the time, how are you, how are you going to prosecute anyone? No, no it's, it's a good question. At all. I mean, and it's not like they were ever going to get the Ramsey's cooperation. So what case could they have ever had? No, they they wouldn't have had one, but that doesn't mean that you, you can just give up on it. You've got to work on it. You've got to try, at least. No, I, mean, I agree. Like, I, again, I absolutely agree that John and Patsy Ramsey and maybe even Berg had something to do with Jean Bonnet's death. I think that is a very reasonable hypothesis. But believing that and believing there was enough evidence to get a conviction at trial, that's two different things. So that, that's basically where I'm at. Um, I lean heavily towards the Ramseys did it, but I don't know that they could have been convicted. Yeah, as much as I, it's hard for me to believe that a parent would harm or, or cover up the death of their own child. There's a lot that points that way in this one. Yeah, I think that's where most people are at. I think that's part of the reason that this case, why Americans had such an unhealthy relationship with it. You know, this is probably the only case we have ever looked at where we've said, wow, that prosecutor really did not do enough. Yeah, I know. I mean, I almost feel like a hypocrite because so often we're harping about prosecutorial you know, misconduct and overreach. And in this case, it's just the exact opposite, but we're still complaining because of the motives Hunter had for doing it. It's not like, you know, he was an, a, a huge advocate for criminal justice reform. He was just a political coward who didn't want to prosecute the Ramses. And really, I don't think there will ever be any evidence now that can, can prove this case one way or the other. I mean, unfortunately, I agree. I think particularly with the passing of Patsy, we'll probably never know what happened to Jean Benet. And as depressing as that is, I think that's where we're going to end it tonight. Thank you very much for listening to Fact and Suspicion. We apologize for the longer than usual episode gap. Life got in the way. But we should be back to a more regular upload schedule going forward. So thank you for bearing with us. If you have any feedback or comments for us, or if you would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, we would love for you to reach out to us through email at factandsuspicion at gmail.com 
or on Twitter at Ann Suspicion.